Man, you're getting killed out there. <sighs> Tell me about it. I feel like Rocky after 15 rounds with Apollo Creed. Speaking of Rocky, did you know that Sylvester Stallone wrote the first draft of the movie in only three days? Did you know that Sylvester Stallone permanently flattened out his knuckles from punching the side of beef? What about Burgess Meredith? He had lived his line in the audition, which landed him the role of Mickey. Or that a destitute Sylvester Stallone turned down $350,000 because the studio didn't want him starring in it? Well, you can find this out and much, much more by listening to Rocky Minute, the fan podcast that covers the Rocky movies one minute at a time. You can find us on DuelingGenre.com. Now get back out there and knock this bum out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week I'm joined by producer Andrew to discuss the ensemble characters from the television series Person of Interest. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. Feels weird to welcome you because you're here every week, even if you're not always jumping in into the conversation. Well, and like I provide you the link. So who's welcoming whom? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, glad like, to have I, you. Like my, my button actually says invite. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, very glad to have you on as the core guest for this discussion about person of interest. Andrew, do you remember how you first came to Person of Interest? I, uh, not entirely. It, it was something that when I was in college, our parents introduced me to. I was over at the house and, and it was, I think, some somewhere in the middle of season one or maybe into season two. Um, they said, yeah, watch this. It's It's, you know, a bit into the show, but, you know you should start watching it. And, and they recommended it. And so I, I sat down and watched an episode and, and then I enjoyed it and ended up watching quite a bit um, as it was airing. And then at a later stage in college, when I didn't have cable, I was not watching it as it was airing. Um, <laughs> I tried to watch some of it, you know, as it came online, cause that was an attempt I made without cable. Um, but then with, with Netflix, it, it's currently on Netflix. I've, I've watched the entire series start to finish. But it was always something that I was like, yeah, I really like that show. I I like that show. And I'll go back and finish it sometime. It was, you know, just one of those things that like was in my mind often, yeah. even even when I wasn't watching it. Yeah, I remember um, seeing that it was going to have Michael Emerson, who I had very much enjoyed his performance on Lost. So I was immediately intrigued. He's fantastic. A, a great reason to watch a show. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to see what his next project was. And that was like the curiosity that got me into watching the pilot. And then it was a show that my wife and I had on the DVR for the season, you know, recording. So we kept up with it. I think when we moved at one point, we either didn't get set or we lost stuff that we had to watch. And we, we didn't quite finish the series when it was on. And we had to wait for it to all get added to Netflix the last season. But once it was, we, we finished it out pretty quick um, at that point. And... Uh, it, I never regretted having, you know, a new episode show up at the DVR. So I was like, oh, good. We'll watch that this weekend. Yeah, it was, you know, it was, it's, it's one of those ones that I can imagine like, oh, it's on. Well, that's at the top of the list. You know, you, mm-hmm. you don't let those stack up too much. Yeah. 
So for anyone who's not familiar, Person of Interest was a crime show with a sci-fi angle that aired on CBS for five seasons from 2011 to 2016. It told the story of the mysterious Harold Finch, who built a supercomputer to compile all of that available data or data to protect uh, to predict crimes before they happened. At the time, Finch was working for the government, but when he realized the government was only interested in preventing large-scale tragedies, Finch stole his code and now tries to help individuals as well as fending off lots of big bad agencies. And Finch recruits I, a team now, to help I'm just out gonna, in the field to prevent these crimes. I'm going to throw out, I don't think he stole the code. Is this, is this like official synopsis or? This was my memory. So, I mean, this is, I mean we're, we're okay with, um, with yeah, spoilers. No, he, he intentionally made an entirely closed door, but the machine contacted him. Because oh, that. the government would not um, would not, you know, respond to small scale. You know, now it, that you're saying this, I remember that happening. Yeah, I remember this. And so, facts. yeah, the the machine started calling him with um, numbers that eventually. Well, it, it was a code to get him serial or not serial um, social uh, security numbers for individuals mm-hmm. as a either potential threat or um, potential victim of a crime imminent. Yes. Now, now that you say that, I remember that backstory. You're and so you quite the, the machine that he built is, you know, they. I think by the time we get into the episode we're talking about, you know, season four, they call it a artificial super intelligence. Um, and so all all of the artificial intelligence stuff and and even some degree of personality, mm-hmm. um, although that's not super explicit most of the time. <laughs> yes. But you know. Uh, a sense of personality to some degree. (laughs) Uh, So we're going to be looking at the 11th episode of season four, which was titled if then else, which was directed by Chris Fisher and written or and written by Denise Thee or Thay. I'm not sure the pronunciation Uh, it's T H E with an accent on it. Uh, the cast included Michael Emerson as Harold Finch, Jim Caviezel as John Reese, a former green beret and CIA agent who needed a purpose. So Finch reached out to him and gave him one. Uh, Kevin Chapman as Lionel Fusco, a dirty cop with a somewhat moral streak. I think I think formerly dirty cop at this point is fair to say. Yeah, but also the moral streak is maybe a little more ish. <laughs> than that <too>. Yeah, <laughs> so. I mean, initially he was being blackmailed into helping them. Yeah. And then started doing it because he felt like it was the right thing to do. But like kept all the dirty copness as he was doing the right thing. <laughs> Just yeah. less of the blackmail to do it. Amy Acker stars as Root, a hacker who can talk with the machine. And Sarah Shahi is Samin Shah, a government agent who carried out missions for the government's version of the machine before joining up with Finch and Reese. And in the episode we're discussing, the machine explores multiple potential solutions to a scenario, playing out the most likely outcomes and then exploring a new solution if the result was unsatisfactory. So we see like things happening and then it backs up in time, which mm-hmm. um, it, that's certainly not how you get every episode playing out. This one's very much like a chess game where you imagine if I move this piece, then they will do this and then I will do this and then they will do this. And that's how it ends. And then the machine. Yeah, this isn't route. This isn't a, a like typical, typical episode of the yeah. show. I mean, they do things where they play with the genre and, and scenarios and things like that. But most episodes are pretty standard formulaic. We have a number of a person who is either the victim or the perpetrator of a, of a violent crime. And it's figuring out which one they're going to be and how to protect 
people. Yeah. A um, little bit of trivia about the show. Not a ton, uh, but Person of Interest was created by Jonathan Nolan, brother of Christopher. You may have heard of him. Uh, the only Emmy it was ever nominated for was for sound mixing, which seems a shame. There's good performances and good directing and good writing in the show, uh, but it never was like an awards darling at all. Um, I mean, I don't think it was it was a tremendously popular show either. Well, it was the number five most watched show on television in its second season. It was which is which is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Anything in the top 10 is great. Uh, and it did get generally like positive reviews and um, just like in glancing at trivia about it, um, a lot of um like reviewers were calling it, well, the smartest show on television. Like when they were like, it's back in season mm-hmm. three, this is one of the smartest shows on television, that kind of uh, commentary about it. Because but I, I also feel like it's, it's the type of show that like, if you bring it up in casual conversation, there's going to be a lot of people who don't even have a passing recognition of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think that's fair. Uh, and it was a crime show of the week for, much of its first season, which it, it morphed into something else when it got into these larger moral quandaries about artificial intelligence, about uh, morality of predictive crime stopping, uh, about government conspiracies. Like it morphed into something else than what it started out as. It started out as more of, um, you know, a, a Law and Order or a Bones or a, you know a Castle with the Crime of the Week and uh, a little twist on. Um, who was going to be involved in solving this crime. And mm-hmm. it, it became something else as the series progressed. Yeah, it, it came, I mean, it towards the end, it became much more and more about, you know, the concepts of morality and dealing with the artificial intelligence and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, and I, in some ways, I think it was uh, prescient of some of the concerns. Like when this started airing in 2011, I do not remember nearly as many concerns about online privacy and cookies and privacy settings on Facebook uh, as what we've had in the last three, four years, you know, since it's been off the air. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, before we move on to the full summary, listeners, we want to thank you for downloading this episode and listening. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. And we've had a couple of people who, for various reasons, have, have had to cancel their Patreon uh, you know, uh, donations. And I just want to say, that's fine. We understand. And I appreciate that you supported us for as long as you did. So thank you, everyone who has ever supported us at any level for any length of time on Patreon. Uh, all supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are short episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers, give um, uh, monthly updates on our fantasy box office. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So Andrew, you have the long summary this week. Yes, and Joseph already introduced um, most of the characters we'll be dealing with. So there's there's Finch and Reese, Fusco, Root, and Shaw. Those are the main core good guys. Um, there's also what is just called the machine, which is what gives them all of their information. And by the time we are in, um, you know, this episode in season four, there is a an evil machine called Samaritan, and that machine also has operatives or agents. So just so you know, all the pieces that are on this chessboard um, for this episode. You ready? Yeah. Hit, uh, hit us with this, this summary. And I, uh, having, having summarized a few time travel-ish type stories, and this one's not really <laughs> time travel. Uh, but, but ish. <laughs> ish. 
uh, I look forward to, to hearing your <laughs> discussion of this. Oh, and I, I guess maybe right before when I rewatched this episode, which I hadn't watched for a, a few years, any episode of person of interest since we binged that last season when it first showed up on Netflix, um, there are some visual quirks to the series some like hallmarks of how they designed the look of like the machine's point of view and also mm-hmm. like you see the machine like trolling through data and jumping th- like backwards in time and they have a little timeline at the bottom of the screen when it's doing that sort of thing and it was just so pleasant to like re-immerse myself in the world of person of interest and some of the unique uh just storytelling aspects that this show embraced that you don't see on other shows um and this mm-hmm. this particular episode really leans into some of those uh, aspects of the storytelling. Yeah, this this episode is machine heavy, which not every episode is. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the evil uh, artificial superintelligence Samaritan has started to crash the stock market by making specific transactions at a specific rate. The good artificial superintelligence, the machine, has provided its team with software that can correctly um, it can correct and save the stock market. And prevent the like absolute economic collapse, but to do that, they have to install it in the lower levels of the New York Stock Exchange. So Finch, Reese, Fusco, and Root all gather to infiltrate the the stock exchange and install the software. The remaining member of the team, who is Shaw, is going to be saving lives, which is you know the basic uh, operation of the machine, what it does day to day. Um, but in addition to that, she will be sent to speak to an employee of the stock exchange's security company so they can get an access access code for the main team, so they can get into the server room, all of that. So Team Machine is able to enter the stock exchange and descend to the lower levels. They provide camera feeds to the machine so that it can help them uh, see what they're doing down there as well. Samaritan does not have these camera feeds, so its agents are less prepared for the scenario. However, as soon as the team has descended into the lower level and provided the machine with the camera feeds, the building goes into lockdown. Samaritan has planned all of this so that it can trap them inside the building. Um, And there's dozens of its own operatives down in the lower levels with them. So the only advantage that the team machine has is, is that they have the camera information. So they know where everyone is. Samaritan's agents don't know where everyone is. Um, Unless, you know, they start accessing things, yada, yada, yada. Meanwhile, Shaw has found the security agent with the necessary codes, uh, and they're on the subway. And as she approaches him, another passenger on the subway reveals that he's wearing a bomb vest and plans to kill himself, his stockbroker, and the subway car, and lots of innocent bystanders. Um, And so this takes some of Shaw's attention away from talking to the security agent. Back in the stock exchange, Samaritan operatives are pinning down the team in a break room. And so they look to the machine to to formulate a plan for them to to escape the room and also succeed in their objectives. And so the objectives are, number one, to get the software installed and correct the stock market. And two, to provide emergency backup power to the elevator so they can escape. So the machine is rapidly exploring simulated scenarios for how this is going to happen. And the bulk of the episode is, is spent in a few of these scenarios. Um, it's sort of like a Groundhog Day thing um, or a time travel thing, if, if that's how you prefer to look at it. And so I'll, I'll cut to the, what those scenarios are. But also in between the scenarios, we see flashbacks to 11 years ago when 
Finch was first teaching the machine how to evaluate decisions, and he was using chess to do this. And part of this process included explaining to the machine that it must prioritize and reduce the total number of potential scenarios it considers and take the best course of action that can be determined within a short period of time. And so this is really relevant to what the machine is doing in the stock exchange. You've got, you know, near infinite scenarios, you need to pin it down quickly. Uh, Finch also stresses that in the real world, sacrificing people is not acceptable like sacrificing pieces in chess. It's an important lesson to teach an AI. People are not like chess pieces. Yeah. Um, so in the first simulation, uh, the machine sends Finch and Root to install the software and Reese and Fusco to address the elevator. And so the actions of Root and Finch alert Samaritan operatives and ultimately lead to Reese and Fusco being apprehended. Shaw asks Reese how to... In, in the in the scenarios, so they've got, you know, um, earpieces and they're communicating. So Shaw asks Reese how to talk down the guy in the bomb vest, and his advice is not helpful. So she resorts to <laughs> shooting him and deactivating the bomb. Um, she is arrested and does not get the access code. And so without the code, Root has to shoot the lock on the server room door. And this alerts more Samaritan operatives. And they arrive before the software can be installed. And Finch is killed. And the machine identifies this scenario as critically failing and resets to another option. Um, in scenario two, Root and Finch are sent to fix the elevator and Reese and Fusco install the software. Um, and they were able to fix one element of the elevator, but Root is killed while attempting to complete the final step. Uh, Shaw is again unable to deescalate the bomber and is arrested without obtaining the code. Reese and Fusco shoot the lock at the server room to gain access. Before they're able to install the software, Samaritan operatives attack. Reese, he pushes Fusco out of the door and sacrifices himself to take out Samaritan's operatives. But this scenario gets reset because this is, again, not working. Uh, third scenario, right? The machine sends all four of them to install the software and then deal with the elevator. And the machine simplifies the simulation partway through. It's like, okay, we're running out of time. And so all of the team dialogue results or er, is reduced to descriptions of how they typically talk. Um <laughs> Which which is a pretty fun thing, and it's it's a fun like deconstruction of these characters um, for this episode. Mm-hmm. And during this scenario, uh, Fusco is the one to give advice to Shaw on how to deal with the bomber, and this is actually useful. And she's able to defuse the situation and ultimately get the security code from the security agent. And the team accesses the server room and successfully installs the software. They are then able to successfully restore the elevator. But while on the way to the elevator, they are attacked by the Samaritan operatives. And the machine determines that a 2% chance of survival is what you get out of this scenario. Um, so you get success with the software and 2% of survival for the team. But this seems to be the best option. And so it relays this information to Root. And she's the one that tells everyone what to do. And so we get the main reality version. You know, we're done with the scenarios. We're in the actual reality um, and this is really close to the third simulation. And when they're attacked near the elevator, Reese jumps in front of a bullet to save Finch. And as the machine updates its estimated chance of survival um, for everybody, it's just decreasing and decreasing and decreasing for everybody. So they seem to be in a bad spot. Um, Root calls Shaw to say goodbye. And before they're done talking to each other, Shaw arrives next to them. Um, and the machine starts to update their odds of survival exponentially. So just, it was going, you know, down to 2% and it's like slowly creeping down and it's trying to extend the, um, the, the decimal places <laughs> to, to estimate more success. But then Shaw arrives and then everything jumps into the teens and twenties and thirties. And um, so they, they can actually survive this scenario. 
So they successfully make it to the elevator, um, but it can't be activated. It has to be activated across the hallway. There's like a button by a desk they have to push. And so someone would have to sacrifice themselves. Shaw runs across the hallway and is shot multiple times, but is able to help the team escape. And as the elevator closes, a Samaritan operative stands above her with a gun pointed at her head. And the episode ends with a cliffhanger. And there's a noise that could either be a gunshot or the doors of the elevator closing. It's unclear. And it was uh, was very unpleasant to be watching this one week to week at the time. And not having the play next episode option. (laughs) Yeah, that one's a, a tough one. Now, Joseph, one of your favorite things about TV shows. Disguised pregnancy. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Shaw is, is pregnant here. And one of the reasons that they leave a cliffhanger is she needed to go have the baby. They weren't sure what she was going to <laughs> she do was being for the rest of the for show. A st- for a storyline, which is a very common yeah. method uh, in this you episode. Know, like, okay. This gives us a couple months to let her go, but the disguising of her pregnancy is just filming, you know, kind of from the halfway up the abdomen mm-hmm. and also She's wearing all black with kind of a loose jacket, but like yes. there's some scenes on the subway. It's like, okay, you can kind of tell. <laughs> yeah. She, she's, she's definitely pregnant in some shots um, that were not obvious to me on the first viewing. Someone pointed out at some point mm-hmm. I was like, and I think I was looking for it in this rewatch. I'm like, Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, so I think but, they actually, but if you're not paying attention for it. It's like, okay, that's actually pretty smooth. Yes. And I think what they did successfully was they, you you were never super aware that they're hiding something, which a lot of shows mm-hmm. when they're hiding it, it becomes more awkward because of the links they go to, to have the character be behind objects that are, you know, three quarters height on them or yeah. uh, the, the change of the outfits, which for Shaw, having her wear all black, that's not really it's a wild standard. departure. And that's, and that's a pretty standard jacket, except she usually wears it closed. Yeah. Uh-huh. Instead of open and loose. And then at, in the finale, it's just that the stunt double is covering their face quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I, I thought it was on the whole a successful uh, covering the pregnancy. And then the classic writing out the character for several episodes where you're not quite sure what it is. And if, if we do see the character, they can be, you know, they're strapped down in a bed and being shot from the face, you know, just a face shot or whatever mm-hmm. it needs to be. Um, yeah. So I, I, on the whole, I, I think out, this is a success, successful dealing with an actress's pregnancy, <laughs> uh, which other series have struggled with. I also want to point out, um, you talked about how there's some visual language about the, the machine's perspective and um, the timeline and all of that sort of stuff. This episode is pretty heavy on that. And it's, I think one of the best things about the show is learning to read what the machine is putting on screen. Mm-hmm. You know, when they use the machine's perspective and seeing, you know, how it categorizes everyone, like it identifies Finch as an administrator and um, Reese as a primary asset and then their secondary assets um, and things like that. And then when it's dealing with like the percentage chance of survival, they somehow communicate like emotion in the machine as like, I don't want this to be the best scenario, but if I don't do anything, then everyone's going to die. Mm hmm. You know, you see these moments where it's like trying to make this work and it's trying to think that it will work. You know, it, it, it's almost engaging in self-deception as it like extends the decimal places for survivability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I think one thing that the show does in those sequences is there's literally too much information to be taken in. 
um, in the amount of time that we get shots from the machine's perspective, because you are supposed to be overwhelmed by how much information the machine is incorporating into the decisions that it's making. Yeah, it can process so much. There's enough time that you do fully comprehend some of the screen, and they usually do a good job of high, like through color change or or something, letting letting you know which information they actually want you to be paying attention to. But if you pause it, there's more going on on the screen. Yes. Um, and it's just, uh, I think, of a clever and successful way to give you this different point of view. And, I mean, sci-fi television film is littered with efforts, successful or not, to provide the point of view of technology, you know, or a cyborg or, um, you know, or, or a robot and, and how they are perceiving the world. Um, this one, because it's not an actual like robot that's walking around. We don't get like the camera point of view of, you know, the swinging mm-hmm. head with the, the kind of yeah, eye shaped holes close, through closed circuit cameras. Yeah. This is all. Yeah. Security footage um, with data being presented at the bottom of the screen or up the sides of the screen, you know, in the form of text or, or numbers um, that's showing us what the machine is, is doing as we're also taking in the footage that's being shown to us. But, you know, like I said, with the, you know, as it's like extending decimal places and things like that, it's also giving you, you know, what is the machine thinking, which mm-hmm. is actually, you know, a more internal perspective than we get out of most characters. You know, it's, it's not quite an internal monologue, but it's in that kind of territory and you're, but because it's presented just as raw information, you know, you're not getting the narrative version of it. You're just getting the informative version of it. And I think that's really interesting because you can't get a character explaining exactly what they're thinking very, very, very fast. But with the machine, you see, okay, it's running through all these scenarios. You know, it has like a scrolling number tally where mm-hmm. it's showing like, you know, a hundred thousand scenarios and you're like, okay, it's, it's thinking. And I am in that thought process. You know, like my perspective is that perspective. And yeah. that's a really interesting, you know, it's, it's an interesting perspective. And I like that you also see it like jumping back. So we see kind of the machine's origin story of it, it playing chess with Finch in the park where, where Finch is getting texts of what the next move is from the machine. And Finch is like talking to the machine about game theory and chess theory and everything. And you see that conversation is one of the points of data that is influencing the decisions that the machine is going to make next as it's trying yeah, to save as many people as it can. I think um, a point where it's like scrolling through those scenarios and it's like, okay, I have eight seconds to make a decision and it kind of, and this is, you know, really early in the episode, it highlights some, you know, informational processing computer language stuff, but it basically says, you know, reviewing, I think it's core precepts or something, you know, like Mm -hmm. what is the core of my decision-making process? I need to review that so I can deal with this situation because I need, I, I need to like boil it down to basics. How do I know how to make a decision? This is how I know I need to stick to this. Yeah. And um, you're seeing uh, in, in this narrative form of kind of computer processing of decision-making, right. <laughs> as it exists mm-hmm. now in coding, obviously the machine is far beyond what, as far as we know, what exists, <laughs> what, what, what can exist, but it's, it's using uh, it's, it's launching from the foundation of current coding language in order to extrapolate this uh, sci-fi world and this sci-fi, as you said, like what art, artificial super intelligence, is that what it was called? Yeah. 
and I like that. I mean, that's the, the title of the episode is what if then else, if, uh, if then else. Yeah. And so it's, yeah. you know, it's just running through, you know, logical circuits, you know, if this, then this, then this. And mm-hmm. if that doesn't work, what else am I going to do? Yep. Um, and the idea, like the premise of the series that there's this means of preventing crimes instead of bringing criminals to justice after the act has happened. That is something like the, the short story minority uh, was called minority report. Or was that the change for the film? I'm not sure, but, but I mean, it's, it's not unique. Like they didn't, they didn't invent that for the show at all, but I think this is a successful exploration of that. Even the current final season of elementary, the CBS um, Sherlock Holmes series Mm -hmm. has, um, at, at like the the big bad for this final season because you know often there's there's like the over looming threat uh, mm-hmm. uh, even as each episode has its own individual crimes is kind of like a, a Mark Zuckerberg Elon Musk blend who <laughs> it created like the most popular social med- network in the world of of that but for also various like, purposes but, well well no but he he's trying to stop crimes before they happen by tracking people's oh online searches their email correspondence because he also uh has search engines and email that's very popular in the world of the show and he has Mm -hmm. computer systems that are tracking uh everyone's usage and when he sees things that are red flags for a future terrorist act or a future murder he has uh operatives who go take that person out (laughs) and Mm -hmm. but but it's it's largely you know the machine with a less moral person who's getting the information uh in it but that's kind of the big the big bad of this current season of elementary it seems to be something that we're kind of fascinated with the idea of um but then it becomes like the moral ambiguity of you're not policing actions you're policing thoughts and where Mm -hmm. does the line come for what is right or wrong. And obviously in the world of elementary, they're saying, well, this is completely wrong because th- he's sending out people to go kill <laughs> um, yeah. anyone well, and who you get, is showing um, this in, in the world of person of interest. Of it's, it's, we're going to prevent the crime from happening, but it's not through murder. <laughs> yeah. And I'll, I'll touch base on that in a second, but you get the same thing in um, Captain America, winter soldier. It's, mm-hmm. you know, they talk about like an algorithm that's determining who's a threat. Um, and they talk about, you know, a threat to whom and, and, you know, then they're just going to eliminate them. And that's a whole thing in, in that movie, but they talk about the same concept, you know, this yeah. um, preventative step, you know, through analysis and with person of interest, I think one of the things that they choose to do, you know, from the creator standpoint that makes it successful and, and less ambiguous um, is that the premise is that it only provides a number, a starting point, and then it requires a thorough investigation on the part of our, our human heroes to determine whether they are likely to be the victim or the perpetrator of this crime. Um, and then they also have to kind of observe and intervene, not eliminate the threat. Yes. You know, they intervene in whatever's uh-huh. going on. They don't just, okay, we know that this number is going to be, you know, a murderer so we're going to kill them beforehand they observe and wait until they see like the actual evidence of violent crime yeah or, or I, that is at least the intention of mm-hmm. of the operation and, and that whole premise that the machine gives a number and they don't know if it is going to be the perpetrator or the victim that at first seems kind of like well that's a little wonky why doesn't the machine just do it but i think it is doing some of that like moral like it, it it's 
acknowledging the moral ambiguity of what a, a truly preventative crime force would be. Um, yeah. and forcing, like you said, the, uh, the team, but then us as an audience to be making assessments at, at what we're watching. And, many times in the series like you're introduced to the characters and you're like oh that's the bad guy and then you find out nope that was the victim <laughs> and yeah um, and, i mean oh, they, they work with them. You're like oh they're so nice like all the all the signs are there that this is a good person so you assume this can be the victim and then you find out the dark underbelly of their life that makes them the perpetrator of an upcoming crime yeah and they um i think you know like two of the seasons are focused on dealing with corrupt police officers. You know, there's an entire corrupt police organization within the NYPD. And so you can't trust the police and they have to keep protecting, um, you know, organized crime individuals. And, and so you have this balance where it's like, okay, all of the expectations go out the window. We don't know who anyone is going to be, which kind of reflects, um, you know, reality. Of, of dealing with crime. Yeah. Um, but also I think they, they structure it so that you have to say, it's like, look, you've got to pay close attention to, to, to people when you are worried about them, you know, whether you're worried about them being a threat or being threatened. And if well, you pay also, close attention, then you can, then you can help when it's needed. I, I, I think a huge part of the success of the series or the themes that the, the series is, is building is this idea that um, you can begin these engagements. Yes. With there are going to be preconceived notions and prejudices that come in and you can trust your gut to a degree, but you also have to be willing to reassess um, as, as you gain new information and that ability to, to pivot and uh, perceive that someone they thought was going to be the victim is actually the threat. Someone that they thought was going to be innocent is, is, um, you know, is actually like a side piece, like in some of the stories they were like, not even actually like, they're just actually like tipping a domino, uh, for a series of events that are going to happen. Um, and I I always enjoyed those episodes where it's like, Oh, they're, you know, they're, they're just actually being put into, into the world (laughs) that they need to be exploring. Yes. The right place, uh, through this. Um, and, the the constant need to take in information and assess what it is that you're taking. That's both the machine and the human characters are, are being put in that position because the machine isn't giving them the full printout of everything it assumes it's going to know. And I think the one reason besides that being a, a functional premise of the show for, to keep audience guessing and keep us all on edge. It's also the reality that the machine is trying to understand humans and isn't quite sure of of everything they say, like we see it in this instance, running through the thousands or millions of scenarios as it's trying to choose in this, in this episode, like what is the best end result? Um, because it doesn't, it, it cannot predict everything, but it can predict something's going to happen in this area. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, you know, choosing these likely scenarios. Um, should we talk about the characters? I mean, yeah. we've talked a lot about the machine, which I do. I, I consider a character in the show, well, uh, but I guess real quick, you know, before we get into the five character, or six other characters, one other theme that uh, I guess, yeah, we've talked about the machine and some of the themes that, that are, are uh, strong in the show. There's one term that I remember. I think it was like in a season, like an interview before season two started with Christopher Nolan, the creator of the show where you he mean, said, um, or not Christopher, no, Jonathan Nolan. Yeah. Sorry. Wrong one. Uh, he said, the siblings. It, 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the show needed to be set in New York because he said New York is a contained infinity, meaning we can tell any story. We can have any character we need uh, in New York City, uh, but it is still contained to, uh, uh, you know, this the space that we can use in the show. And I th- I loved that phrase, a contained infinity. Um, but I think it's also true, not just of New York City, but of the like digital frontier that they were playing with uh mm-hmm. th- through the the ai that that itself also represented this kind of contained infinity uh that became as you said like the uh, an evolving character that that changed <laughs> and that you saw you saw um like hesitation or uh or concern um in these simple data readouts that we're seeing on the screen that was all I had on that. I just really like yeah, the phrase. I, I, don't, I don't have any comment yeah. on that. <laughs> yeah, no, just the phrase contained infinity has stuck with me for at this point. It would be like seven years, I guess, since yeah. since I first heard him say it. And maybe he picked up that term from somewhere else. That was definitely the first time I had encountered it. It's, it's a good it's a good term. Yeah. Uh, anyway, what uh, what characters do you want to dig into first? Um, I like Finch. I think I, he's one of the one of the favorite characters. Um, in the entire show for me, and and he is kind of like the first primary character mm-hmm. out of out of all the people that we see in the show. So let's talk about him some. Yeah, uh, Michael Emerson does a fantastic job, um, and I spent years years acting a limp, which has got to be tough. Yes, but then also in some flashbacks, not. <laughs> yeah, no like, limp. So he has to. So he has to play. You know, you can tell a certain amount about, you know, the time of the flashback. This is before or after whatever accident. Um, and and but, there's something yeah, about Emerson's performance that I always enjoyed. And I think he is using film editing and television editing to strengthen his performance through the Kuleshov effect, which is that um, <laughs> a, a plane... He, he, Expresses no no emotion most yeah. of the time. Yeah. So this was uh, an editing effect test from the silent era done by uh, it was a Russian um, actor, I believe, named Kuleshov, if I'm remembering right, uh, who was used as he like they filmed him with just a blank look on his face, and then they edited in different images after they showed his face and they would ask audiences, what was he thinking? And if they showed food next, they said he was hungry. If they, you know, you, you know, the kind of thing that they're going to do, like just showing different things. And Emerson will often have kind of a blank look on his face. You can sense something's going on in his eyes. And then he just like, yes, you can see the turn to action, but that like the amount of time that he gives with a blank look on his face allows you to be like wondering what's going on. And then like you, you could probably picture it, Andrew, because you've watched all this show, the sudden turn of his head as he decides what the course of action is going to be. And, and, and sometimes it's, it's a more reactive face. I mean, he'll do like the wide eyed. It's like, okay, like, I'm around violent people and I don't like violence. And yes, you know, moments like that where it's like, uh-huh. you guys are very direct about how to handle these things. And I, I do not think in the same way. I am a hands-off person. <laughs> whereas yes. whereas um, uh, the, the people he surrounds us with, surrounds himself with are not hands-off. Yes. And it, but I think, I think his performance is great. I love, mm-hmm. um, you know, his performance. I, I loved him in lost and he won an Emmy for, for lost. He did. Um, yeah. And well deserved. Yeah, I I think he's a fantastic actor, and I'd love to see him in more stuff. I think I think he has a 
a fantastic performance. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm not trying to say that like him doing that blank face is like weak acting. I think it's a strong choice knowing the medium that he's yes, working in. It's, um, and it's, it allows it's a very intentional. Mm-hmm. It's a decision mm-hmm. that this is, this is how I do this. And it yeah. conveys a lot by doing very little. Yes. Or, or ostensibly doing little, because like you said, you can feel like he is thinking. Yeah. And, and you like, almost that, feel him the, processing that's the, like that's the machine his main performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's his main performance is thinking. Yeah. And you know, like his reaction is I need to think about this, not emotionally react. I need to process this. Yes. So let's, uh, let's talk about some of the opposite of that uh reese a man of action shall we say yes i mean he is all guns all action but um he's a very quiet presence like he is he almost always is whispering it's it's like his performance yeah like it is practic practically whispering and Mm -hmm. um and he doesn't open his his mouth wide it's it's very low key Mm -hmm. Um, which then when it does the turn to like the full action, like he's, he's shouting Mm -hmm. with his body after like several scenes of full whispers. But you kind of feel that it's building to something. And and some of that is like, you get used to the rhythms of these, these episodes, you kind of get a feel for like the, the fight before the act break Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, But I just love the contrast of um, how he communicates with everyone versus Mm -hmm. when action is needed and he is all in. (laughs) Yes, um, because he's, you know, very rapid. And some of this is, is again, the editing. Like, they, they work this show together really well with the performances and the editing. And, and they, he has a good stunt like work. Yeah. He, yeah. Um, but his his action is, I don't want to say explosive because it's more controlled than that. But it's, um, and but I also don't want to say frantic because, again, it's, it's controlled. and precise and, yeah. yeah, it's fast and precise and complete. Mm-hmm. And, and instantaneous, you know, it's, it's yeah. Everything that frantic and explosive would be except intentional and precise and controlled yeah, and deliberate <laughs> um, in, in and, those. Yeah. And I mean, like it, it, his, like he seems so unreactionary in his face to everything, but so intensely reactionary in his movement. Mm hmm to things you know like when gunshots go off his face does nothing uh-huh. but his body does everything yes and so uh, i really like the way you put it with like shouting with his body yes um even as he whispers with his with his face uh and then fusco is kind of the opposite of that but he's not a finch opposite it's just he's kind of loud and bumbling at wherever he's at like he, he just feels like yes. a very loud presence in he's in his dialogue delivery, uh, in, in his physicality, um, and like very little precision. Yes. <laughs> like he, he is useful in a fight to a degree. He is no Reese in a fight. Yeah. Um, I mean, he is, he is tough. He is tougher than average. Mm-hmm. He punches well. He can take a beating. But he like, he, yeah, like, like he can take probably more of a beating than <laughs> most of the other characters on the show. But he cannot dish it out as effectively. Yes. <laughs> and so he he wins a fight by taking more punches than the other guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but I mean, he's still like competent, but 
a little bit messy. So all of these, like Finch, Reese, and Vusco, they are all broken and flawed and operating in gray areas, but they're all different degrees in in how... And in different areas. Yeah, and, and, and what form of the trauma that made, made them what they are. Like, it's different for each one of them. Like, they're all very distinct, but... You can also say which one is the, uh, you know, the emotionally uh, stunted, uh, morally gray uh, character that is mostly trying to do the right thing, but maybe their methods aren't the best. Like, try and ID that character <laughs> on, on yeah, first like, of well, that's kind of That's kind of all of them. <laughs> yeah. And, but, like, they all work together in, in effective ways. And that's one of, one of the things is, okay... Nobody's going to have all the strengths, but if we put the right team together, then we cover the bases and no, they don't work perfectly with each other. And they, they sass each other a lot, (laughs) Um, which you can see, especially when the machine reduces it to, you know, their basic stuff, which is essentially accurate when you see their real world scenario. It's it's like the words aren't the same, but it's like, but all the, all the stuff is the same. (laughs) Yeah, like well, and it's it's like converting like the speech. Like I think Roots is something like snarky one-liner, but the actor is just delivering like snarky one-liner that deflects from the tension. <laughs> it's what, like yes. the, that's what the, um, the the character like see we see them saying that, uh, which is exactly what the character would say. They just have you know the machine isn't plugging in the details. Yeah, um, and so that's an interesting process because it means that in theory, like okay, we can reduce these characters to this caricature, but it, it, it doesn't indicate that these are weak characters because they can only be that way. It just indicates like, okay, these characters have characteristics. Yeah. And um, we, and we know them well not, enough not as an audience. Not every show is going mm-hmm. that, that not every show is going to have mm-hmm. I heard um, somebody say on a podcast recently talking about like the new um, season of Veronica Mars. And they said, really every character is the same character. They all speak the same way. They all deliver the quips the same way. And I haven't seen Veronica Mars, so I can't attest to it, but mm-hmm. that was how somebody described it. I was like, okay. And you can't say that for person of interest. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And that's the world they want for Veronica Mars. And it's not what they want for person of interest. Yeah. And I haven't seen the newest season of Veronica Mars, but uh, I trust that uh, even if you can kind of like summarize it that way, it's going to feel different yes, when you're watching I, it. I, I'm sure it is more nuanced and I my, might've just been about, you know, speech patterns. Everyone mm-hmm. is, you know, this level of quippy and snarky. And I mean, that's a criticism that's kind of gets leveled at Joss Whedon. Like there's kind of a snark, mm-hmm. a snark tone to his dialogue that can be uh, in, in some ways copy and pasted, but otherwise not. Like I, I still remember seeing a, uh, or, or hearing another writer talking about working with Joss Whedon. And they said that they had written a scene and realized that they hadn't given Xander anything to say. So they just changed Xander's name on one of the lines and Joss uh-huh. Whedon was reviewing it. And he circled that line and said, this isn't a Xander line. That's a Willow line. And that's who they'd written the line for initially <laughs> and changed it. Like they just changed the name to try and give him something to do with the scene. Um, so I think, yes, there can be like tonal, you know, uh, a, a tone that feels indicative of a show, but, still there's individual voices. I think that's something with this show. Like we said, we can say they're all kind of these broken, emotionally stunted individuals that operate in a moral gray area, even as they're trying to do the right thing, but there's definite individuality. Like you're not going to mistake Fusco for Reese or Reese for Finch. Yeah. Um, okay. So root and Shaw are the, the ones left. 
So root who, is creepy. Who do you want to hit first? Yeah, root <laughs> is um, like overtly forward with everybody about everything. <laughs> yes. No sense of social boundaries or decorum, mm-hmm. including with the machine. Um, yes. Um, and a lot of confidence, which is not and, what Amy Acker has always played. No, that's not her character on Angel. That's for to, sure. to actually, well, and, and yeah, to, to, to actually tie back to a Joss Whedon connection. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I mean she's and Amy Acker's done a lot of stuff. You have almost certainly seen Amy Acker if you've watched network TV in the last twenty yeah. years. She is a heavily working actress. Like she's just she she is. I, I don't know what busy. her work schedule is. Yeah, it, it's busy though. That's for sure. And she um, has she has covered a. a broad range of characters. So I don't know what Amy Acker would actually be like in person. <laughs> yeah. Like she doesn't have, because a I've seen so many different takes and she is uh, of these characters. I think she's most closely a doppelganger of Finch. Um, Cause she is as smart with computers as Finch. Um, she understands the machine like Reese and Fusco could care less about what the machine is doing or what it is. It's like point mm-hmm. us, you know, or how it works. Yeah. Yeah. But she understands it in a way to the level that Finch does um, as well. But she is, um, like you said, she's just much more, um, I guess, out there in like literally Finch is kind of like a man behind the computer that that sends these agents out. She's actively out there, even as she's also talking to the computer in a way that Finch doesn't even have access to talk to the computer. Um, Yeah, Finch certainly has restraint in a way that Root does not in just about every way. That's the word. She lacks restraint. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and we're, so we're talking we about have, the way she talks to everyone else, her sexuality, the uh, her relationships her violence, with, with everyone. Her, yeah, her violence. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah, she Everything is. She is, is not concerned about violence. Is unrestrained. Um, even even like with her own safety, she is less restrained than most of the other characters. Um, and and I I think brazen might be a good word for her. Hmm. Yeah, um, that's another good one. To, to Unrestrained and brazen. That. I like um, that. I think is, and then the, I don't. She obviously has some moral elements to her, right? She is on the side of the machine. She is trying to do good things, um, but her I, reasoning for it is not the same as everyone else's. Like, n- it, like to some degree, it seems to be she does what the machine tells her because I, the machine tells her. And less because she thinks it's the right thing to do. Yes. I was going to say, I think she's more amoral than the others. Yes. Um, like um, she is well, not I was doing say, what I mean, she's doing for the greater good of humanity or anything. She is interested in preserving the machine and helping the and machine. serving the machine. Yes. Preserving and serving the machine. That's her I mean, and, and motivation. It goes into um, other, other seasons and everything, but she essentially considers the machine God mm-hmm. for her. But, you know, this is, this is the power. This is her higher power. But also, she is very maternal towards the machine at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, she wants to foster it, it to um, to fulfill its role, and then she will serve it as it fulfills that role. Like Finch and Reese, you know, there's definitely a moral core there. Fusco, they're burnishing a moral core that was pretty tarnished <laughs> um, yes. through the season. I don't know that there is like a moral motivation that's driving Root. It, I think yeah. she is, especially in her feelings towards other humans. She's largely amoral. <laughs> like she's, yes. it, and she's not um, in it to, so, to hurt them, but she doesn't care if anyone gets hurt in the process of doing what the machine needs done. 
Mm-hmm. Um, recent Fusco have habitually aimed for kneecaps. Root has not habitually aimed for kneecaps. She walks in pointing the gun wherever the machine has told her is most effective to point the gun, which is not going to be at kneecaps. Yes. um, And she's not going to make a point. Like they have to remind her to, to aim at kneecaps. Yes. She rolls Um, her eyes whenever she hears it. Yeah. And they have to do that a little bit with Shaw, but it's not the same with Shaw. Shaw doesn't have that brazen disregard for everyone else's morals and everything like that. Shaw is just, this isn't what I'm used to doing. So it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> she's, know, she's not to, used to kneecaps. She's, she's used to, to center mass. Well, I was going to say, she is a soldier that's used to war zones and they're trying to rehabilitate that attitude <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and acknowledge the different setting that she is now operating in as an agent of the machine. And she is, um, she's rough around the edges, not as blunt as Fusco, but rough like Fusco. But, uh, but she's also like, she can be as precise as Reese in a way Fusco never could, could be. Yeah. And so it, it's an interesting balance that she strikes where she is coming more from the same world as Reese, mm-hmm. um, than anyone else, but you know, doesn't have all of his same attributes. Yeah. You know, like the same precision, like you said, um, and, and being able to handle all of that stuff, but less of his quiet demeanor. Like she's more likely to be loud and obnoxious is not the word I necessarily want, but it's the, it's the word that I'm coming up with, you know, or, or grading. In or may, her maybe unconcerned <laughs> about how her yes. actions are going to be perceived. Yeah, she's less concerned about how loud she might be or how she might be perceived. And not that Reese is especially concerned. I mean, Reese is more concerned about not being perceived. Yeah, this is, Reese has a stealth about him that Sean never really adapts to. Yeah, because she's more comfortable with dealing with the problems that she might incur from not being stealthy. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I think that goes back to what you said. Like, Shaw is a bit more military than Reese. Reese was a definite spy. Mm -hmm. And I think Shaw was less spy and more, um, more military team, Mm -hmm. you know, special unit kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, Not as, as concerned with the subtlety. Yeah. I think that's a good description of these characters. One thing I do want to make sure we praise this show for is they had a lot of very interesting women on the show, uh, as characters. um, This is after, um, Detective Carter um, was no longer on the show, mm-hmm. and she was a great character. For, and there were a couple a other side show. characters that would get brought in. I remember there's—I can't remember what season it is or what episode—but there's one where like Reese is in a bad situation, and basically, I, I think, think with, I know what exactly what you're going to describe. It, it's three is women it? just coming loaded in with guns <laughs> to go rescue Reese, yes. and it was yeah. in a way that didn't feel at all pandering because the show had taken enough time to develop all these women as like Mm -hmm. people you would believe in that situation. It kind of reminds me in the early two thousands, there was an X-Men comic book that had an all female team. And I remember, Mm -hmm. um, I think it was the, I found boy podcast. I read that comic book. Um, saying for almost any other franchise, this would feel forced, but the X-Men, it doesn't because it has such a long history and has developed so many different characters, characters of color, uh, women and, and male characters, you know, men and women, uh, that 
you can put together this team and it seems completely legit that these are all characters that are at that status and at that level that they should be part of this core team of the X-Men and person of interest developed enough of these um, female characters that it, it didn't feel like it was pandering or forced at all. It's like, Oh no, these are the characters I would want to come rescue me (laughs) right now. They they are competent and effective and, you know, on the level. Mm Mm-hmm. And it never and it never feels like they're stretching to put them on that level. It's just nope, they're here. Yep, that's that's who and, they are, and they operate at the same level. Um, and 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 that's on um, both sides. Like the primary agent for Samaritan is a woman, and she is as threatening as any male character they could have chosen. You know, it's it's they don't make a, a deal out of it at all. Well, do you have any final thoughts on uh, person of interest? I think it's really strong overall. I it's enjoyable. I like the show. I like spending time in that world. And um, again, this episode is not a typical episode. You know, most of them are a little more standard um, procedural stuff. But it's worth watching, and it's I think it's worth watching all the way through to get the procedural stuff, but also the bigger stories that they tell. Yeah, um, and it took the time across its five seasons, five or six. Now I'm suddenly blinking at what we said at the top. Uh, five. Five. Took the time to build up this um, quasi-sci-fi world, but it was also close enough to, like I said, these issues that we're engaging with not too long after the series went off the air uh, that the the themes, I think, still still will resonate with a, a viewer who wants to like go see what was going on with Person of Interest. All right, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 15, when we talked about the TV show Castle. Or episode number 32, when we talked about Bones. Those are both reaching back, but we had a couple of procedurals early on. It's been a while since we did a, a uh, procedural TV show. Feels good to, to re-engage with it. You can reach out uh, reach out to us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or us on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at jdorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Dizminute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Thank you again for listening. And we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. I know that pain of like being in the middle of a summary and then like, did I need to add something right here to transition? Yes. Did, did I include all the info yeah. I need? And like ad libbing a couple sentences and they're like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. I, said, I just <laughs> want you to know. I understand exactly okay. what you're going through. <laughs> so um, I might back up a little bit and, and take another run at that one. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no worries at all. <laughs>